0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. We had a great week. Uh, I got to spend most of my week uh, with one of our sister churches uh, up at Parkside in Denison. They are 18 exits uh, up the highway, uh, and uh, I counted them every day. Uh You know, the trip through Sherman is not a fun one these days, and so, uh, uh, but I had a great time there, and uh, my friend uh, Jeff Humphrey is the pastor there, and uh, just a great church, something that they've done for a number of years, so we started on Sunday evening and went through Wednesday morning, and uh, it was just a great, great time. Uh, Pray for Jeff, Uh, Jeff is a huge Baylor fan, Um, some of you got that because you... Follow college football a little bit. Uh, Check on your tech friends as well. Um, I sent a text early this morning to our church planting partner up in Wyoming. And I said, how about those Wyoming cowboys? Um, That's all they have up in Wyoming. All right. So, you know, uh, strange, strange things. But uh, I am so looking forward to uh, this season. I, I think of the fall as a season of hope. Most of the time, we think of spring as a season of hope because you're coming out of winter and all that, you know, you've got resurrection and all the things associated with the spring, And uh, but here in Texas, uh, when, you know, we live so close to the inferno um, that it's like the hope of just slightly cooler temperatures comes with fall, and the hope of rain. I, I got a notification a minute ago that we're supposed to get some rain today, I, I don't know, I... I, I saw one early this morning that said we got some. I went outside. I looked for it. I, I didn't see any sign whatsoever of any rain at my house. But uh, uh, this is a season of hope for us as a church family. Uh, we are nearing the end of our uh, construction project on Colin McKinney Parkway. In fact, I would tell you to to really pray uh, during this season. These next six or eight weeks are critically important uh, they're starting to button things up over there, and they will start working on all the interiors, and that means, you know, paint will be, you know, carpet, tile, all those things, a lot of interior stuff. Uh, they're about to finish in the next uh, week or so, most of the exteriors, and so it's it's coming. Um, we have don't quite have a front door just yet, but that's only because uh, our superintendent doesn't want to see the glass get broken with all these people coming and going, so... Uh, things are coming together, and your giving is critically important uh, in this time as well. I know that some of you have given sacrificially for many years. Some of you are a little newer, and you've only recently jumped in, but uh, uh, but your giving, our giving uh, during this season is critically uh, important, and so be in prayer for those things. Well, we're going to be in John chapter 7 this morning in our continuing study through John's Gospel uh, we've already noticed how uh, things have shifted a bit as we've made our way to this point in, in John's writing um, where we saw some, some, some wide acceptance and an embracing of, uh, of the Lord Jesus. Uh, now we're starting to see more and more division, uh, more and more people looking at Jesus uh, with eyes of skepticism and doubt and uh, even contention and those kinds of things. And, and I think we're going to see that even some more here in the final verses of, of chapter 7. B- billions of dollars are spent every year to create perceived needs in people's lives. It's, there's an entire multi-billion dollar industry that is responsible for this. It's called the advertising industry, right? Maybe some of you work in that field. Advertisers know that they must convince us that we need something before we'll be ready to buy what they're selling, which promises to meet the need that they just created in our minds. It's what some people would call a pernicious loop. So they they, they, they present this need, convince you that you need this thing that they're selling with the promise that it will meet that need. Uh, and then when you buy that thing and it doesn't necessarily meet your need, then you think, I need something else. And so you ever seen an advertisement and thought to yourself, now I'm a gadget person. I'll be scrolling around sometimes and I'll see something and I'll think, that that is cool. That would really make my life better. Like I need this in my life, right? I can convince myself of that. And so naturally the advertiser has done their job, you know. Um, that's the interesting thing about human need, Sometimes we are deeply aware uh, of, of, of or unaware rather of, of real needs in our lives while we are keenly aware of false needs or created needs. And so there's like this disconnect between felt needs and actual needs. Uh, our, our bodies do the same thing. You, you ever reached a place where you were so tired, but but you thought what you needed was food? Like, I need food to energize me, or I need another cup of coffee, or I need something. I'm going to have something. to. And then what you discovered was it wasn't food that you needed. It was actually sleep that you needed, like a good night's rest. Your body can kind of fake you out in that way. Well, the same thing happens many times uh, with our souls. Our souls have needs just as surely as our bodies do. And in much the same way that it happens with our bodies, our souls will often mistake one need for another. Our soul's greatest need is for God. We were made for him and for his glory. Now, as as Augustine of Hippo said uh, in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Listen to that again. You have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so with that, let's look at uh, verses 37 through 52. We'll look at these last few verses in John chapter 7 this morning. And it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these things, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, or the Messiah. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Hasn't the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus from John chapter 3? Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So, we're talking this morning about an invitation, an invitation that Jesus gives. And I want you to notice in verse 37 the perfect timing of this invitation. This is where we've got to do a little bit of a, uh, of a historical or a, a, a look at the context of what's happening here in the original writing of John's gospel. Our text begins by telling us on the last day of the feast. The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, again, this is the the feast of tabernacles, or uh, what it's translated in some as the feast of booths. Which, let me make sure you're hearing me this morning. Somebody was giving me grief between services. They thought I was saying the fe- the festival of Booths. b o o z e. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying booths, with the t h. Okay, um, and so the feast of booths. Uh, and so remember, Jesus' earlier interactions within, with, with the Jewish leaders, with the crowds, the people of, of Jerusalem, it took place earlier in the middle of the Feast of, of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Now, Jesus has waited until the last day of the feast, what's called here the Great Day, to stand up and call out with this invitation. The last day of the Feast of Booths, the Great Day, was intentionally chosen by Jesus for a specific reason. Each day during the Feast of Booths, the priests would lead a water pouring ceremony around the altar. So during the night before the the beginning of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, the the priests would would, uh, went and they filled up a large water vessel with water from the pool of Siloam where Jesus will later heal a man uh, born blind at the same pool. Each day, then, during the feast, the priest would lead a procession around the altar, singing the Hallel Psalms, they're called, Psalms 113 through 118. And they would pour the water onto the altar, and it would then gather around the base of the altar. And so, what was happening then is the feast uh, was building toward this climactic convocation that would take place on the great day, or the last day of the Feast of Booths. And on that last day of the feast, the priest priest would march around the altar seven times. Does that sound familiar to you? Just like Joshua at Jericho. They would do this before pouring pouring out the water on the altar. And this water-pouring ceremony looked back... That's what the Feast of Booths was all about, was was a, a glance backward to God's faithfulness to his people as they made their way through the wilderness. It would look back to God's provision in the past, but it also looked forward to the hope of God's provision for the future. So the past provision was primarily the provision of water in the desert wilderness, the time when God's people lived in tents or tabernacles or booths. That's the reason for the name of this festival. And so the water that God provided there in the wilderness flowed from a rock, a rock that somehow followed the Israelites throughout their desert journey. Now, the apostle Paul, uh, who had been trained as a Pharisee under Israel's most famous rabbi, uh, wrote about this desert generation when he wrote to the church at Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we find these words, "'For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers,' that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Okay, this is one of those areas where scripture makes it crystal clear to us what the typology is. Okay, what we say, if you sit and say, what, what seems to be concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. So, if you're reading the story in the, of of the Israelites and their wilderness wanderings, you're looking at some of this, going, "What what does all this mean? There's got to be something more to this." Well, there is. This is all pointing to, picturing Jesus Christ, the Rock, the Rock of Ages that we sing of, uh, and so the ceremony looked back, but it also looked ahead. In Ezekiel chapter 47, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision of a magnificent temple, and water flows out from the threshold of the temple to all the nations of the world. This is just one of the visions of water in the prophets, which were all associated with the glorious future that would come in the age of the Messiah, in Isaiah chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, it says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. So it was on the, on the, on the last day, the great day of the feast, that Jesus stood up in the temple. Just as the last of the water perhaps was being poured out on the altar, the people were hushed in silent anticipation. So you think, what perfect timing in the midst of this ceremonial pouring out of water and everything that Jesus now stands up in the midst of them and says, Come, those who are thirsty, come, come to me and drink, come. I want you to notice as we look at verses 37 through 39, what a powerful call this really is. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now notice this invitation is extended to anyone who thirsts. Now remember, Jesus has been publicly challenged. He's been mocked. He's been rejected. He's been questioned. Even people who have started to believe have been intimidated into silence. But now Jesus loudly proclaims his invitation to everyone in the temple, priests, Levites, Pharisees, people of Jerusalem, visiting crowds from far away. Everyone, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What what a powerful call. What an invitation. And he extends this same invitation today. This is not a a history lesson. The question rings out today right here. Do you thirst? Do you thirst? Do you know your need? Most of you know that I'm I'm a type 1 diabetic. I was diagnosed at the age of 30, 27 some years ago. One of the first indications that something wasn't right is that I was thirsty. Really, really thirsty. We'd go out to eat before our meal even came. I would want—I drink three or four glasses of water or tea or whatever. I was just—I was at a thirst that you can't even describe. And even as I began to realize this probably isn't normal, this isn't right, I was just kind of living in denial for a period. Like, surely there's not something more significant going on here. But I just knew I was so thirsty, and I had a thirst that just seemed like it couldn't be quenched. There's a lot of people living like that today. It's not a physical thirst for physical water. It's a thirst for something more. There's a longing deep inside their soul that can't be quenched. That's the picture that we're seeing here. Do you thirst? Do you know your need? Thirsty people come to the offer of water. Those who see their need come to the call of Jesus. What does it mean to be thirsty? It's to know and to feel your lack, your insufficiency, your need for something that you can never provide for yourself. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus is offering an ultimate satisfaction here. He offers real drink to those who truly thirst. And the real drink that Jesus offers is not some new energy drink that promises to replace your electrolytes and all those things. No, the real drink that Jesus offers is himself. Himself. Come to me and drink. What does it mean to come to Jesus and drink? Well, it means to believe in him. It ties in with John's purpose in writing this gospel. I write these things that you may what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Which is what he says himself. If anyone believes in me. And this message is the same as the message Jesus gave months earlier to a crowd in Galilee in John chapter 6. Remember when he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We're talking about a thirsty soul today, and then I want you to notice that this invitation comes with a promise it comes with a promise. I think about uh, the, the things that are offered today and, and is an enticement to get us to buy a particular product, you know. If you buy three right now, then you get a fourth one free. And, you know, they'll come with these guarantees. Like this comes with a full money-back guarantee or a a 90-day warranty or, you know, all these things. Hoping that you, you know, we want you to be fully satisfied with whatever it is that we're pitching to you. Well, Jesus' invitation comes with a promise. Here in John 7, Jesus makes this promise. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What an interesting statement. So John then explains his promise by saying, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So first, Jesus' promise means that the indwelling Holy Spirit will be to the believer rivers of living water. Many rivers of living water to satisfy all the thirsting of our souls. So I beg some questions. Are you, are you carrying maybe this morning the burden of guilt and you're thirsting for forgiveness? Well, the Holy Spirit applies the redemption purchased by Jesus Christ to our hearts, reassures us that we have full and complete forgiveness. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're feeling lonely and so you're thirsting for love and for belonging and so the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ as the spirit of adoption and reassures us, reassures us of God's love for us uh, as our Heavenly Father. Maybe you're here today and you're feeling pain. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed. The Holy Spirit strengthens and empowers us with courage and boldness in the Spirit. Maybe you're here today and you feel anxious. The Holy Spirit leads us in prayer as we cast all of our anxieties on him and then gives us the gift of peace that surpasses all understanding, Scripture says. Maybe you're longing for truth and, and, and you're feeling the thirst of, of your ignorance or of uncertainty. The Holy Spirit comes as the spirit of truth to teach us all truth. Maybe you're longing today for our heavenly home. And you feel the thirst of living in a fallen, sin scarred world. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our eternal inheritance and reassures us of our future, even as He helps us continue to long for it. As I said earlier, sometimes we must misunderstand these longings, these needs of our soul. And so we'll think that what we need is we need more money. Then I won't be anxious. I won't be fearful or, or whatever. We think we need more possessions, more, more earthly pleasures. We think we need more distractions or more entertainments. And, and so we'll look for, uh, to, to satisfy, to quench this thirst in us in all different areas. And we see it all around us. Some people turn to substance abuse. Some people turn to to, to workaholism. And there's so many different ways that people try to, to, to quench the thirst that they are experiencing. But these deep soul thirsts indicate a longing for something that only God can give us. The Holy Spirit comes to satisfy those thirsts in Christ. Christ who is our rock and our living water. But this is not an individualistic experience. Jesus says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The living water flows out from the heart of the believer to those around us. And if we take the imagery of Ezekiel's temple vision and combine it with Jesus' words here in Peter and Paul's later teachings that we are living stones in God's temple, then we get this beautiful, this compelling picture of how the grace of salvation flows. God saves us and unites us to Christ. He is the chief cornerstone of the living temple of God, and we are stones being built into that temple. And from the temple flows a river of living water that is to flow forth to the nations. The water flows out of the heart of an individual believer to one another within the church and then overflowing to the world. This means that for us to share in an experience of God's full refreshment, we need to be connected to one another. So we can share with each other the refreshing water of life that God has given us. Think back to to what Jace was sharing with us in our prayer focus this morning. Maybe maybe you come through the door sometimes and you're just like, I just need to be refreshed. Like, I feel like I don't have anything to give, but I need need to be refreshed. So as the body of Christ, we can come around you and say, here, drink. (laughs) Drink. Drink. We need to be engaged then with the world so that the, the water can flow from us to a world that is in need. This means that, that we need true Christian community within the church so we can live and, and share the water of life together as well as a true engagement with the world so that the thirsty may come and drink of the water of life. I've always loved this simple, simple explanation of the gospel and of evangelism. To share the gospel, evangelism we sometimes call it, is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. <laughs> We're talking here about somebody, someone who thirsts and has found satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction for that thirst. They've had it quenched, and they want to share with others how they can experience the same thing. It's that simple. Now, what does John mean when he says that the Holy Spirit has not yet come? Because Jesus has not yet been glorified. Didn't the Holy Spirit come upon people in the Old Testament? Didn't believers share in salvation in the Old Testament? Well, yes, but not in exactly the same way as believers do now. Everyone who has ever been saved, please understand, everyone who has ever been saved has been saved by grace alone through faith alone. As the Holy Spirit has caused them to be born again, receive the gift of eternal life. So people in the Old Testament are not saved in a different way or there's a, a different gospel or anything. That's not what we're suggesting. But the Old Testament saints, you've got to remember, lived in what we would call an age of expectation, of longing, looking ahead to what Messiah would do. They didn't experience the fullness of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the same way as those of us who live under the reign of the risen and exalted Jesus. So in Romans chapter 8, when Paul writes there in verses 14 through 17, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Then in Galatians, he writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So there's a deeper assurance of adoption as the children of God. A stronger sense of liberation and of the presence of God now that Christ has secured our redemption and is reigning forever as our Redeemer. To think of it another way, the Holy Spirit came upon the prophets, the priests, the kings in the Old Testament to anoint and empower them for ministry. There's this anointing. Well, in Christ... Our great prophet, priest, and king, every believer is now a prophet, called to speak the word of God to one another and to the world. Many times when we see the word prophet, we're thinking uh, of of, of being able to foretell the future. But more often in scripture, what you find is is it is a foretelling of the truth. Thus saith the Lord. So every believer then, a prophet, called to speak the word of God to one another and to the world. Every believer, a priest, to intercede for others and minister the grace of God to one another and to the world. Every believer, a king, called to serve under the king of kings, King Jesus, and exercise godly dominion over his world. So we're all anointed and dwelt, we would say, by the Holy Spirit as adopted children of God and as prophets, priests, and kings of God. So if there's an invitation and a promise, what is the response? I suppose over the last 30-some years of ministry, I've, I've extended hundreds of, of invitations in one form or another. It's an invitation to, to receive the word of God with joy, with humility, looking into the mirror of God's word, as James says, and not forgetting what kind of person you are. How much the word of God can mold and shape us. So you, you determine, I'm not going to just be a hearer of the word today. I'm going to be a doer. I'm going to do something with this message. That, that, that's the invitation in many ways. Sometimes the invitation is, is more directed in a way. And I can tell you that over the years, there have been a variety of responses I've been in settings where there were dozens and dozens of people across the front as we extended what many would call an an altar call. I've seen other times where there was not a a visible response, but I found out later that there there was actually a response to the invitation. It was very powerful. So what does that look like? How did the people respond to this powerful invitation and, and, and this wonderful promise that Jesus extended? Did they flock to Jesus' feet and did they cry out to him, Lord, we are thirsty, give us the water of life? No, not quite. The response was very mixed, much like I suspect it will be today. It was very mixed. You'll notice in verses 40 and 41, there was a response of wonder and and joy. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Some people were convinced that Jesus was the prophet who was to come into the world. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 18, God told Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So think about this, in this cultural context, for almost 1,500 years, God's people had longed for this prophet to arise. Now they thought he finally had in Jesus, at least some of them. Others were now convinced that he was the Christ, he was the Messiah, the long-awaited, anointed one, the great and glorious king over God's people who would bring them salvation. Of course, they were both right, (laughs) probably not in the way that they thought. And still, these responses do seem to indicate some level of true faith and joy. And an increasing understanding of who Jesus really was, who he is. But then with that was mixed confusion. If you look at verses 41 through 43, it says uh, others were confused and asked, is, this, is the Christ to come from Galilee? They're like, wait, 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 not so fast. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Remember, that was some of the same thinking in last week's message. So there was a division among the people over him. And these, these people knew enough scripture to know that Micah had said that Messiah would come from Bethlehem. They thought Jesus had come from Galilee, and so they were confused. This confusion led to division and ultimately to, to hostility, and it's, it's, it's not unlike our day. There's a lot of confusion today still over Jesus. Some people would try to convince you that Jesus, yes, he was a great teacher, They would even suggest to you that he was a prophet, but they would not not believe, along with us, that he is the son of God, God in human form. A lot of confusion about Jesus. Then I want you to notice there was also a response of hostility. Some of them, in verse 44, wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. But even among those who were seeking to arrest and destroy Jesus, division arose over this remarkable man. If you look at verses 45 through 52 again, it says, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, he's different. No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you now been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Do you see us, the religious elites, falling for this stuff? That's what they were saying. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So the officers, you got to remember, were Levites. They were of the tribe of Levi. They were charged with guarding the temple. They were supposed to remove false teachers to protect the people from being led astray. But they had never heard anyone speak like this man, like Jesus. No one had ever spoken with such majesty and beauty and clarity and authority. The Pharisees will have none of it. Have you also been deceived? They say, What's wrong with you, Levites? Instead of removing this false teacher, you've been taken in by him, you fools. None of us leaders believe, only the cursed, lawless crowd. And here we see how corrupt spiritual leaders, these were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, can become so arrogant and so cold-hearted that they do not only despise the Gentiles whose worship space, remember they had filled with animals and money changers, but they also despise their own Jewish brothers, accusing them of being a bunch of, uh, 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 of, of fools. And then finally, Nicodemus himself A member of the Sanhedrin, known as the teacher of Israel, reminds the leadership of the very law that they claim to know so well. He's like, hang on just a minute. Does our law judge a man without a hearing? This is too much for them. They now, in their their minds, have a traitor within their very midst. So they lash out to Nicodemus, essentially, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So now, these religious leaders, their prejudice and their ignorance has come into full view. The prophet Jonah came from Galilee, remember? Not far from Nazareth. The truth is that the scriptures don't say where most prophets come from. They are so angry, so full of hatred, that this has blinded them to their own scriptures. Remember, these were the religious people of the day. So again, the invitation, it still stands. It still stands. It's as powerful an invitation today as it was then. It comes with the same promise as it did then. So again, the question is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? And will you come to Jesus to quench that thirst? Maybe you could pretty quickly say, "Yeah, I think there's there, there's a, a deep sense of longing within me." I, I, I would say I'm searching for something to bring ultimate satisfaction. I'm I'm searching for more. I'm searching for, I, but I can't seem to find the satisfaction that 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 that, 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 the long, that satisfy the longing that's deep within me. You look at the world around you, you think, if I just had more of this, or I had more of that, or I had more freedom here, or I had more margin here in my finances, or I had this, or I had better you look around, and think, if I, if I just had. I'm always reminded of, of Tom Brady a number of years ago, after he'd won Super Bowls and at the time was married to a supermodel and all these things, and what did he say? There's gotta be more. There's got to be more. What was he saying? I'm not finding ultimate satisfaction in all this stuff. And yet by the world standards, anybody would say, what more could you possibly want, man? You probably have one of the most magnificent homes that money can buy. All the cars you could possibly desire. All the stuff. You Go back to Ecclesiastes. It's all vaporous. It's all vaporous. It doesn't ultimately satisfy. So here we see from joy and wonder to confusion and chaos to division and outright hostility. People respond to Jesus in different ways. And what about you? There's a pretty good chance, living here in the good old United States of America, particularly in the Bible Belt, that you've heard a similar invitation before. Maybe it was when you were a kid in vacation Bible school. You heard an invitation to admit that you're a sinner, believe that God God sent his son Jesus to die for your sins. If you confess your sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, you'll find hope and healing and forgiveness, satisfaction. Maybe in recent years you've been wrestling with some of these things, the real meaning of life, and, and why does it seem that there's just something within me that just can't be satisfied? Are you thirsty? Do you understand your real need? Do you know that this prophet from Galilee is the Christ? He is the Son of God. Do you hear his call? Do you know that his words are always true? Are you thirsty? Will you come to him for ultimate satisfaction? If we could for just a moment together bow our heads. I have a pretty good idea that in the room today, much like the crowd to whom Jesus offered this invitation, this powerful call, there are some who have and continue to respond with wonder and joy. Yours has been a journey of faith in Jesus Christ. You can identify a time in your life when you turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ. And by the grace of God, you've continued to grow in that relationship. There may be others here today who would fall into the crowd of confusion. Maybe you've been considering the claims of Christ. Maybe you've been giving careful consideration and thought and even doing some research into who Jesus really is. Can we truly believe the Bible as the word of God? Is Jesus who he claimed to be? Maybe you're someone here today who has responded up to this point in your life with a measure of hostility. See, Scripture tells us that the message of the cross, the message of the gospel, will be an offense. Because it offends man's pride. Because the gospel tells us that no matter how good we are, no matter how well we behave, we can't save ourselves. So to embrace the gospel is to turn from your own self righteousness, your own goodness, and fall completely and totally on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the one who died in our place. The great exchange of the gospel is described in Scripture this way. He who knew no sin, who had never sinned, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So if you're here today and you're uncertain about your relationship with God, you're thirsting just can't find satisfaction in the things that you've tried would you come to Jesus today in faith we have folks who would love to share with you from the word of God what it means to uh, to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ if you're someone who's uh, confused maybe you have questions we want to be here to help answer questions We have leaders who would love to sit down with you over a cup of coffee and just talk about the the claims of Christ, about Scripture, the gospel. If you're one who has up to this point responded in hostility, will you consider the claims of Christ? The truth of Scripture? Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that your word is a story of transformation. That you are redeeming, reconciling, restoring all things. We find that at the very heart and center of the gospel itself. That those who are in Christ are a new creation. Old things... Passed away, all things become new. If there's anyone here today who's never responded to the invitation to come. If you're thirsty, come. Come to me. Believe. Find that your thirst can be quenched. Satisfied ultimately in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those today who may be here and would say, Pastor, I'm I'm not living the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. I find myself in a constant state of fear, worry, anxiety. I, I find it difficult to trust God. Take him at his word. So there are things that I'm, I'm longing to find, that peace, that satisfaction. Help us, Lord, to cling to you. Cast all of our cares, our worries, our anxieties upon you. Could you care for us or do a work in our lives and our hearts that we know only you can do we thank you in Jesus name we pray Amen Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine For more information about our church visit www.fbcva.com